due to the graphic nature of this haunted place. Listener discretion is advised. This episode includes descriptions and depictions of mental illness. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Dr. Lyman knocked on the front door of the brick duplex. He straightened his social services badge and flipped through the family's psychiatric case file. Judith Pratchett had three children, Wendy, age 14, Charlie, 11, and Nell, 9. Wendy was having delusions, maybe a mood disorder, possibly schizophrenia. Three sharp raps sounded from inside the house. Dr. Lyman frowned, probably one of the children playing a joke. He knocked again, and the door swung open, revealing an empty front hallway. No sign of whoever opened the door. Dr. Lyman shrugged and walked into the house. A sitting room to his right was crammed with sleeping cots, like the whole family had been sleeping there for some reason. Dr. Lyman called out, and more loud knocks came from right behind him. He quickly spun around, but there was no one there. He took a seat on the sofa and said he'd wait until whoever was here stopped messing about. Someone chuckled as if in response, and Dr. Lyman's hair stood on end. He said he wasn't afraid of children, but truth be told, he was starting to feel a little nervous. Just then, a barrage of knocking sprang up, followed by a gust of cold wind. A stack of papers blew off the coffee table. One smacked him in the face. He pulled the paper off and looked down at it. His whole body went cold. Written in a child's uneven lettering were the words, Are you afraid now, Dr. Lyman? Dr. Lyman dropped the paper and screamed as he ran out of the house. Whatever was going on here, it was nothing he could diagnose. Welcome to Haunted Places, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week is the second episode of our special four-part series, highlighting cases investigated by Ed and Lorraine Warren, the duo who inspired The Conjuring films. Today, we're headed on a supernatural journey to Enfield, England. A haunting there in the 1970s was the inspiration for The Conjuring 2. In the years since it first occurred, it has become one of the most well-publicized and controversial hauntings in modern history. Coming up, we'll get into the Enfield haunting. At 1 a.m. on September 1, 1977, Police Constable Carolyn Heaps arrived at a council house at the edge of a London suburb. She was greeted by Peggy Hodgson, a recently divorced mother of four. Peggy claimed that her two middle children, John and Janet, had been awakened by the sound of someone shuffling through their home. The footsteps were followed by a knocking on the far side of the room. 
Peggy was about to tell her children to just ignore the odd sounds, when a heavy chest of drawers slid away from the wall, as if it were being pushed by an invisible force. At that point, Peggy gathered her children and fled to their neighbors to phone the police. Constable Heaps was understandably skeptical about Peggy's story, but she dutifully searched the house for intruders. At first, she didn't find anything out of the ordinary. Then, as she was preparing to leave, an empty armchair in the living room began to rock back and forth. Constable Heaps watched in shock as the chair slid forward, moving at least three feet without anyone so much as touching it. The terrified constable told the Hodgsons that there was nothing she could do about a haunted house. Then she went back to the station and filed an official report. For Carolyn Heaps, the Enfield haunting was over, but for the Hodgsons, the long nightmare was only just beginning. Nell kicked the heels of her black Mary Janes against the low wall. She'd been sitting there waiting for hours. Her sister always walked her home after school. It wasn't like her to leave Nell all alone. But then, Wendy hadn't seemed like herself lately. Wendy used to be so fun. She'd help Nell with her schoolwork and make up stories and games for her to play. But she'd been different ever since they moved into the new house. She'd started doing odd things, like moving furniture around and hiding stuff. Just last week, she'd put Nell's glasses in the refrigerator. Even stranger, when Nell confronted her about it, Wendy hadn't reacted at all. Their brother Charlie said Wendy was possessed by ghosts. At first, Nell thought she was just trying to scare her. But recently, she'd begun to wonder if he was right. Just last night, Wendy's plate had fallen on the floor during dinner. Their mother was furious and sent Wendy straight to her room. But Nell wasn't so sure it was Wendy's fault. She'd barely touched the plate, and it went flying off the table. Nell sighed and hopped off her perch on the wall. Whatever was happening, she hoped it ended soon. She wanted her sister back. The house seemed empty when Nell got home. She kicked off her shoes and was about to head upstairs when she heard knocking. This was another of Wendy's weird new habits. She knocked on things, constantly. It drove everyone crazy. Nell yelled for Wendy to cut it out. Suddenly, a massive crash came from the kitchen. Nell ran to see what had happened. When she got to the doorway, she froze. The cabinets were wide open and all the dishes were scattered around the floor but not a single one was broken. Nell felt her heart pounding in her chest. Those plates were bone china. They broke if you so much as set them down on the table too hard. She heard them fall. There should be shattered porcelain everywhere. This couldn't have been Wendy. It had to be something else. Nell heard the front door open and her breath caught in her throat. She spun around to see Wendy and Charlie pulling off their coats. She breathed a sigh of relief. Charlie peered over his shoulder and into the kitchen. He narrowed his eyes and said she'd better clean up her mess. Nell stuttered that she hadn't done it. Charlie just rolled his eyes and stomped up the stairs. Wendy went up after him, and after a moment, Nell followed her. Nell knocked cautiously on Wendy's bedroom door and found her sister sitting at her desk, 
writing something with a marker. Nell spotted the name Dr. Lyman. She asked who it was, but Wendy hastily pulled the paper away and told her it was nothing. She asked Nell what she wanted. Nell took a deep breath and asked her sister what was happening. Wendy gave an eerie smile. Then she opened her mouth and spoke. But what came out of her lips didn't sound like Wendy's voice. It was the rough growl of an old man. And it told her not to ask questions if she didn't want answers. Terrified, Nell turned and fled to her bedroom. Something was very wrong with Wendy. Nell ran to her bookshelf and pulled out her children's encyclopedia. She flipped to the H's, found the entry for hauntings, and started to read. After a few hours, Nell heard the front door open. Her mother yelled up the stairs, and Nell jumped to her feet. She ran downstairs and pulled her mother into the kitchen. As Judith took in the plates on the floor, her lips tightened into a thin line. She asked if Wendy had done this. Nell shook her head. She said Wendy wasn't even home when it happened. Nell went on to say that none of the strange things that had happened lately were Wendy's fault. There was something evil in this house, and it had hold of her sister. Judith sighed deeply. She understood why Nell might think that, but the truth was, Wendy was sick. She needed help. That was why she called a special kind of doctor, a psychologist named Dr. Lyman. Nell shook her head and said Wendy didn't need a psychologist. She needed a medium, or maybe a priest. Judith said she had quite enough of that kind of talk. It wasn't good for any of them, especially Wendy. Nell started to protest, but Judith cut her off. She didn't want to hear another word about it. Nell squared her shoulders and headed upstairs. If her mother wouldn't believe her, then Nell would get her proof. Nell fetched a spool of fishing line and tied it around the legs of her dresser. She tried lying in bed and pulling on the line. The dresser seemed to slide forward all on its own. Nell smiled. This would work perfectly. After dinner, Nell waited anxiously for her mother to come tuck her in. Finally, there was a knock at her door. Nell told her mother to come in. But it was Wendy who appeared in the doorway. Wendy smiled a little too wide and came to sit on the end of her bed. For a moment, she didn't say anything. Then a change came over her face. Wendy suddenly looked alert, almost scared. She grabbed Nell's arm and said she needed to tell her things. Wendy leaned in close and whispered there was a dark room where people told her what to do. Nell was too frightened to hear any more, but Wendy kept talking. She said there was a man with big gray tombstone teeth an old woman, and a girl who looked like her, but wasn't her. That was very important. Wendy put her lips to Nell's ears and said they were all watching, and the man with the gray teeth didn't like fakers. A shiver ran up Nell's spine. Did Wendy somehow know what she was going to do? A knock on the door made Nell jump. Her mother came in and told Wendy to go to her own room. Wendy said she wasn't going anywhere. She needed to talk to her sister. Nell said they could talk later. And Wendy snapped that they couldn't. They had to talk now. Suddenly, there was an angry knocking on the wall. Judith told Wendy to quit it. And Wendy screamed that she wasn't doing it. 
Out of nowhere, one of the books on the shelf above the bed flew down and hit Nell on the head. Wendy asked her mother if she thought she'd done that, too. Judith was at a loss as another book came down. Then another. Nell covered her head as books rained down on her. The fishing wire snaked through her fingers, and the dresser started to move all on its own. It crashed into the bed, hitting it again and again. Nell screamed. She tried to get off the bed, but her leg got stuck between the bed and the dresser. There was a snap, and a searing pain shot through her calf. Then suddenly, everything was still. Nell lay on the floor, tears streaming down her face. Her mother rushed over to her. In a trembling voice, Nell asked if she believed her now. Judith took Nell in her arms and said she did. She would make sure they got the right kind of help. Nell sat back against the bed and smiled. Her leg hurt like nothing she'd ever felt before. But it was worth it. If it meant that her mother believed her. If it meant Wendy could get the help she needed. And Nell could have her sister back. As the autumn of 1977 wore on, the paranormal activity at 284 Green Street only intensified. The Hodgsons recorded furniture moving, Legos whizzing through the air, and a near-constant stream of banging, knocking, and crashing. Spoons were bent, and sofas were overturned. In one instance, the entire iron frame of a fireplace was wrenched out of the wall. Then, three months into the haunting, Janet Hodgson began to display disturbing vocalizations. Specifically, she spewed profanity in a gravelly rasp of an old man. To witnesses, it seemed like a recording was somehow being played from inside Janet's mouth. At this point, the haunting had the Hodgsons living in a state of continuous fear and exhaustion. And the worst was yet to come. Coming up, more experts weigh in on the Enfield case, and the haunting looks very different from young Charlie's perspective. Now back to the story. In addition to being one of the most active hauntings of the 20th century, the Enfield poltergeist case was also one of the most well-documented. After the police were unable to help, the Hodgsons turned to the press in the hopes that publicity might uncover someone who could assist them. The story spread quickly, and before long, the Hodgson girls were being examined by physicists, psychiatrists, hypnotists, and neuropsychiatrists. Some found the girls' claim to be credible. Others did not. One detail that drove the skepticism was the fact that Janet and her sister Margaret admitted to faking some of the phenomenon. Janet Hodgson claimed that no more than 2% of the activity was faked. Guy Playfair and Morris Gross, the paranormal investigators who spent the most time at the Hodgson's home, believed this. They thought it was reasonable that the girls might copy the things they saw happening around them and claim their tricks were always discovered. To many, however, that didn't matter. Janet and Margaret's admission had permanently muddied the waters. If the girls had lied about some things, then who was to say? They hadn't lied about everything. (laughs) 
Charlie closed his bedroom door and collapsed into a fit of giggles. The trick at dinner had gone perfectly. He and Wendy had practiced it for hours the previous day. When Wendy gave the signal, Charlie accidentally knocked over his glass of milk. The ensuing confusion gave Wendy time to carefully slip a butter knife under her dinner plate. Once everyone had settled down, Wendy gave the butter knife a stiff jerk, and her plate nearly flew off the table. Their mother hadn't been watching, but Nell saw it, and the scared look on her face was priceless. Wendy peeked into Charlie's room. He grinned and asked if their mom was mad. Wendy shrugged and came to sit next to him. Charlie searched her face. His sister didn't look pleased with the prank they'd pulled. She just looked sort of empty. She looked like that a lot these days, and she'd been acting funny ever since they moved into the new house. She'd knock on walls and move furniture around. They all knew it was her. Finally, Charlie confronted her about her little tricks. Was she trying to make them think the house was haunted or something? Wendy smiled mysteriously and said she wasn't. But wouldn't that be fun? And it was. Wendy had always been a little bit of a goody two-shoes, always trying to be nice to Nell. Now, though, Charlie and Wendy had a special secret, a game that only the two of them could play. Charlie thought it was awesome, but as time went on, he got the sense that Wendy might not feel the same way. She wanted every prank to be bigger, more extreme. Charlie started to wonder if she had some other reason for playing this game. It was like there was some result she was waiting for. And every time they pulled off a prank, she was a little more disappointed that she wasn't getting it. Wendy said she had another idea. But before Charlie could ask what it was, a burst of knocking echoed around the room. Charlie sighed and asked Wendy to cut it out. He didn't understand why she did that, even around him. He tried asking her about it, but Wendy wouldn't give him a straight answer. When the knocking ended, Wendy told him she wanted to really scare Nell to make her terrified and hysterical. Charlie frowned. He might not like his pest of a little sister, but that seemed too mean. Charlie asked why they needed to scare her so badly. Wendy smiled and told him it would be fun. Besides, Nell needed to stop being such a baby. Charlie bit his lip and asked what Wendy wanted to do. She leaned in and whispered her plan into his ear. The next day, Charlie and Wendy left school early to set up for the prank. Once they got home, Charlie pulled dishes out of the cupboards, while Wendy attached a bunch of tin cans to a string in the pantry. Just as Charlie finished arranging dishes on the floor of the kitchen, a thunderous banging started up in the pantry. Charlie yelled for Wendy to quit it, but the banging continued. After a few minutes, Charlie got to his feet. This time, he was really going to let her have it. But as soon as the pantry door swung open, his mouth went dry. The room was empty, but somehow the knocking was as loud as ever. It was coming from all around him. Charlie turned and saw Wendy walking through the kitchen behind him, her hands at her sides. She walked right past him, like he wasn't even there. Then she knelt in front of him and started stringing tin cans together. Charlie stared at Wendy, trying to make sense of what was happening. His stomach churned. He felt like he was going to be sick. The knocking was still echoing off the walls, but Charlie could see his sister's hands working on a knot in the string. It wasn't her making the sounds. So who was it? Wendy stood up and told him to come on, 
it was time to go outside and wait for Nell to get home. Charlie studied his sister's face as they waited outside the pantry window. How had she pulled off that trick with the knocking? Why did she want to terrify the sister she had always loved? And why was she trying to scare him, too? She knew he wouldn't buy her tricks. It just didn't make sense. When they heard Nell open the front door, Charlie looked at Wendy expectantly. She held up a finger, and Charlie frowned. What was she waiting for? Then he heard it. Loud, persistent knocking coming from inside the house. Charlie's stomach flipped again. Who was doing that? And how did Wendy know to wait for it? He tried to tell himself that she must have rigged up another trick, one that he didn't know about. But he couldn't ignore the creepy feeling that went down his spine when he looked at Wendy. The trick went exactly as planned. When Wendy pulled on the cord, the cans made a sound almost exactly like two dozen plates falling to the ground. The older siblings both ran around to the front door and pretended to be just getting home. The look on Nell's face was exactly what he had expected. She seemed utterly terrified. But the prank hadn't made him happy at all. Charlie spent the rest of the day cooped up in his room. He didn't even come down for dinner. Just before bedtime, Wendy appeared in Charlie's doorway. She said she had another idea for a trick. Charlie said he didn't want to do any more pranks. Wendy sat down on the end of his bed and asked if he was sure. She had a really good one this time. Charlie sat up and studied his sister. She looked exhausted. There were big black circles under her eyes, and her skin looked pale and waxy. Charlie asked why she wanted to pull these pranks. Did she want attention? Did she just want to scare people? Wendy cocked her head and then spoke in a deep, demonic voice. She said that she wanted Wendy to stay in the dark room and she wanted everyone else to go away. Then she got up and walked away, laughing in that same guttural voice. Charlie's hair stood on end. There was obviously something wrong with Wendy. How had he not seen it before? She was falling apart, and their little tricks were making things worse. This was his fault for playing along. Well, not anymore. He was going to put an end to it. He'd confess everything to his mother, and Wendy would have to stop. Just then, Charlie heard a commotion coming from Nell's room. A series of thumping noises, followed by screams. Charlie ran down the hall and burst into the room. Nell was slumped against the bed, and her mother was cradling her. She screamed for him to run to the police call box and call an ambulance. Before he turned to go, Charlie shot a glance at Wendy. She was sitting on the edge of the bed, her hands neatly folded in her lap. She looked the same as she had since they moved into the new house, tired and empty. Thankfully, the ambulance didn't take long to arrive. The paramedics loaded Nell into a stretcher and told their mother she should ride with them. Judith looked anxiously at Charlie and Wendy. Would they be okay at home, alone, for a while? Charlie was going to beg her not to leave him alone with his sister, but before he could, Wendy spoke for him. She smiled, put her hand on his shoulder, and said, they'd be just fine. The next second, the metal door shut, and the ambulance pulled away. 
No one was grievously injured during the course of the Enfield haunting, but that didn't mean that the poltergeist wasn't capable of real harm. Things grew more violent towards the end. Chairs were flung across the room with considerable force. Janet was frequently thrown out of bed, and on eight separate occasions, sheets or curtains wrapped themselves around Janet's neck and started to strangle her. In recent years, an adult Janet Hodgson has given interviews about her frightening experience. In one BBC broadcast, she described the first time the entity tried to strangle her and how she realized that what she was experiencing might actually kill her. Janet's testimony is compelling, but it's the haunted look in her eyes that lets you know she's telling the truth. Coming up, Wendy finally faces her demons. Now back to the story. By December of 1977, the Hodgsons were terrified and desperate for a solution. Luckily, there were more than a few mediums eager to provide one. Everyone who visited the house seemed to have a different explanation for the events. A pair of Brazilian spiritualists claimed that Janet was being tormented by the spirits of medieval yeomen, who she had angered in a past life. Then there was the British medium and her husband, who blamed the chaos on a cackling old woman and an evil magician, and a Dutch clairvoyant who said one of the spirits in the house was the daughter of paranormal investigator Morris Gross. She had died in an accident a few years before. In one interview from this time, Janet's guttural voice claimed to be the spirit of the home's previous occupant, who had died in the living room. But the eeriest explanation was probably the one that came to Janet and Margaret in a shared dream. Margaret described the culprits as 10 naughty things, a baby, a little boy, a teenage boy, two girls, an old woman, an old man, some things Margaret couldn't describe, and a man without a face. Wendy opened her eyes and looked around. She was in the dark room again. It was freezing in here. She felt numb, like the cold had seeped into her brain. In science class, they learned about how electrons slow down at extremely low temperatures. They'd just get tired and stop working. She felt like an electron, confused, tired, and cold. By this point, Wendy was quite familiar with the dark room. On one wall, there was a green door, and across from it was a big round window that was always opaque. Sometimes, Wendy tried to peer through it and saw fuzzy gray shapes moving around. When she put her ear to it, she could hear garbled voices that sounded like they were underwater. There was always someone in the room, someone who told frightening stories and made her do strange things. Wendy tried to ignore them, but once she made it out of the room, she always ended up doing exactly what they said. Wendy saw the door handle rattle and instinctively shrank away from it, even though she knew there was no escape. The door swung open, revealing the little boy. This time, he wanted her to play a game called Toss the Knife. Wendy frowned and asked what he was talking about, but he just kept screaming, Toss the Knife! Do it! Wendy backed away from him, she grabbed the doorknob and stumbled backwards. Suddenly, she wasn't in the dark room anymore. She was sitting at the dinner table, and there was a butter knife in her hand. 
Wendy smiled. She gave it a gentle flick, and her dinner plate went sailing off the table. Wendy watched as it crashed to the floor. Her mother started yelling, and Wendy tried to tell her that she hadn't done it, but the words wouldn't come out right. After a few moments, Wendy silently stood up from the table and went upstairs. Her mother shouted after her the whole time, but Wendy barely heard her. It was like she was very far away. At the top of the landing, Wendy spotted the green door again. It was funny how it was always in a different place. Wendy looked around, but there were no other doors on the landing. When she looked behind her, the stairs were gone. She had no choice, so she knocked on the green door. A voice called for her to come in, and Wendy stepped into the dark room. A young girl was standing in front of her. She looked exactly like Wendy. Same pale skin and short, dark hair. But there was something off about her smile. Like she might open her mouth and spit all her teeth out into a bloody heap. The girl left through the green door, and Wendy ran after her. When she came out on the other side, she was in the kitchen. She looked up and saw Charlie standing at the door of the pantry and staring at her. Beyond him was that other version of her. She was kneeling with a pile of tin cans. She gave Wendy that smile again and started to open her mouth. Wendy hurried out of the kitchen. She didn't want to see what was behind that grin. Wendy went up to her bedroom and shut the door. She felt exhausted. She couldn't remember the last time she slept, or even if she was sleeping now. Maybe she needed to wake up. Wendy pinched herself, but nothing happened. Tears brimmed in her eyes. She was so tired of being confused. She curled up on her bed and went to sleep. When she woke up, Wendy was standing in front of the green door again. She knocked on it, and a voice called for her to come in. This time, the room was occupied by a man with big gray teeth, like tombstones. He smiled wide, and Wendy shivered with revulsion. The man said to tell Nell that they didn't like fakers. Everyone here was real, and they did bad things to fakers. He handed her a piece of paper and nearly pushed her out the green door. Wendy woke up with her head on her desk. Maybe she'd just fallen asleep doing homework, and it had all been a dream. She looked down at the paper in her hand. It had the words, Are you afraid now, Dr. Lyman? Written in marker. Wendy was holding a marker, but that wasn't her handwriting. Wendy remembered the man with the gray teeth and the paper he'd given her. She shivered again. Then she slipped the marker into her pocket and got up. She needed to find Nell or her mother. She needed to warn them about the man with the tombstone teeth. Wendy ran down the hall, but the doors to her mother's and sister's rooms were gone. There was only the green door. Wendy knocked frantically. A voice told her to come in, and the door swung open. Wendy stepped into the dark room. There was a shriveled old woman leaning on a cane. The old woman started saying something, but Wendy wasn't listening. Every time it was the same. She went in and out the same door. She never got anywhere, and she couldn't communicate with anyone. Wendy took a deep breath. Not this time. She grabbed the old woman's cane and swung it at the dark window. 
there was a sound like all the air was being sucked out of the room. Suddenly, Wendy was sitting in Nell's bedroom. She felt fully, truly awake for the first time in a long time. She grabbed her sister's arm and said she needed to tell her what was going on. Nell looked terrified, but Wendy ignored it. This was important. She leaned in close and whispered that there was a room, a dark room, where people told her what to do. There was a man with gray tombstone teeth and an old woman and a girl who looked like her, but it wasn't her. Wendy put her lips to Nell's ears and said they were all watching, and the man with the gray teeth didn't like fakers. Wendy was going to say more, but she was interrupted by a knock. She turned to see her mother in the doorway. She told Wendy to go to bed. Already, she was starting to fade. Things were getting fuzzy again. Nell said they could talk later, and Wendy said no they couldn't because... Next thing she knew, Wendy was knocking on the green door again, and someone was telling her to come in. She stepped into the dark room. The window was gone, and there was nothing beyond it, just a black abyss. The doorknob rattled. Wendy backed away from it. She didn't want to see what was on the other side. The door swung open, and a man in a dark suit stepped into the room. Below the neck, everything about him was ordinary. But where his face should have been, there was only smooth flesh. Wendy took a step back and asked what he wanted. The man's voice seemed to boom out of the walls themselves. He said he wanted Wendy to stay in the dark room, and he wanted everyone else to go away. He would make them go away. The man started to laugh. It was a terrible, stomach-churning growl. Wendy's throat went dry. She took a step towards the green door, and the man nodded. He told her to let go. She had to let go. Wendy shook her head. Every time she went through that door, she ended up doing exactly what they told her. But this time, she would remember. She would resist. Wendy reached into her pocket and pulled out the green marker. If the man wanted her to let go, then she was going to hang on tight. Wendy took a deep breath. She opened the green door and stepped out. Wendy felt like she was in a dream. She looked up at her right hand and saw she was holding onto something. A ledge? Her arm ached and her head felt fuzzy. She had to remember something. But what was it? Maybe it was to let go. That was it. Someone had told her to let go. Wendy took a deep breath and tried to remember. This felt important. She tried to concentrate, but somewhere far away, someone was yelling. Wendy shook her head. She looked down at her left hand. Written in green marker were the words, hang on tight. Wendy clung to the thing she was holding. She looked up and saw Charlie. He was holding out his hand. She reached out and took it, and he pulled her up. He helped Wendy onto the roof, and they collapsed in a heap, catching their breath as they looked up at the night sky. She asked him what happened. Charlie said he'd found her up here, sleepwalking on the edge. She slipped and fell, but caught the rain gutter on her way down. It was terrifying, but she was going to be okay. They were going to get down. She just needed to hang on tight. 
One of the foremost experts on the Enfield haunting was a writer and investigator named Guy Playfair. He and Morris Gross visited the Hodgson home 180 times and stayed there overnight on 25 occasions. Though he always believed the haunting to be authentic, in his book, Playfair refused to draw any definitive conclusions about the cause of the events. But he did theorize that Janet may have been suffering from some kind of spiritual Tourette syndrome, and Playfair was not the only one to offer a medical condition, albeit a supernatural one, as an explanation for the strange events. One of the doctors who examined Janet diagnosed her as schizophrenic, while another said she had hysteria, a catch-all term once used to describe conditions like anxiety and depression. Then there are the skeptics, who believe that Janet Hodgson was never possessed at all. That would mean she just decided to spend two years moving furniture, banging on walls, starting fires, and breaking electrical equipment. It would mean she spoke in voices, barked like a dog, and even levitated in the bedroom, completely of her own volition, which seems just as unbelievable as a supernatural explanation. Of course, we'll never really know the truth. If Janet Hodgson was lying about the haunting, then she was undoubtedly suffering from some form of acute mental distress. Perhaps even she doesn't know what exactly happened. Whether the haunting was a hoax or not almost doesn't matter. Even if their ghosts weren't real, the terror that the Hodgson family felt certainly was. They experienced a trauma in that house, one that has remained with them to this day. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. For more information on the Enfield haunting, amongst the many sources we used, we found This House is Haunted, The True Story of the Enfield Poltergeist by Guy Playfair, extremely helpful to our research. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs. With production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Haunted Places was written by Zoe and Louisa Lewis. With writing assistance by Greg Castro. Fact-checking by Claire Cronin and research by Adriana Gomez. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>